Good morning, Mercy Hill. Happy Easter. We are in a series entitled The Cup, the Cross, and the Crown. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then last week, we looked at Jesus as he was crucified. And today, we see the risen Savior. Before we um, get into this text, hold this spot, I want to share a short story with you. When I was young, and um, when I was growing up, I wasn't all that good at keeping secrets. Um, In fact, I wasn't good at it at all. And I can remember one day where I was probably four or five or six, and we were doing something really unusual in my home. We were shopping for my mom a gift. And my mom and dad just didn't give gifts a lot. It was almost as if not giving a gift was the gift because they just were very thrifty and they saved money. And, but on this occasion, for some reason, we were looking for her a gift. And as I reflect back on this story, maybe this is why my mom and dad actually didn't give gifts. But we're looking and we're going from store to store. And I remember my older brothers with us and myself. And I'm getting tired of shopping. And we finally find my mom a gift. And my dad has this conversation with me about how this is a secret. And it's going to be a surprise. And we're going to surprise my mom with it. So we're not going to tell her about it. So she gets home that evening, and I think she'd been at a church event or, or something that had been taking place, and I just remember saying to her, Mom, we have something for you, and it's a surprise, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'll give you a hint. It's something you put a flower in. <laughs> I don't know what's sadder, that I told the surprise or that my dad had bought my mom a flower pot. Maybe that's why they didn't give gifts anymore. I don't know. But in the text that we're looking at today, there is a secret. There is a surprise. And the disciples who learn of it cannot wait to share it. But surprisingly, Jesus seems in absolutely no hurry to share this news. Today, I'd like us to examine what we can learn about Jesus by looking at the way in which he revealed his resurrection, by looking at the way in which he revealed it. And I think that you may discover that his message is far more intimate and far more caring and far more personal than you ever imagined or realized Now, I know that in a crowd this large, there are people from many different spectrums. There are people who are here who are merely polite. An invitation was extended to you to come and worship on Easter, and you're here because you're polite. And you're thinking to yourself, don't get any big ideas, friend, about next week. I showed up, didn't I? Just be glad I'm here, okay? And then there are some of you who are here And you're fine with the resurrection. And you're good with Easter. You might even claim to believe in Jesus. But really, the resurrection and the fact that Jesus was brought from death to life and defeated the grave, it really has no impact on your life on Monday. When you think about how you live Monday, there's really nothing that you can connect in your life to this resurrection story. 
And then there's some of you who are here and you have been faithfully following Jesus for years and years and years. And for some of you, honestly, one of the hardest parts of Easter is just to fight the temptation that it's just another Easter Sunday. And I get it. It rolls around every year. And as a pastor, it's like, here we go again. You know, what are we going to find new about this story? How are we going to share this story? And so as we fight that temptation, no matter where you are today, I want to ask you for just the next few minutes to go on a journey with me and to walk with Jesus on that first Easter, on the day of his resurrection. Because as we walk with him, here's what you're going to see revealed. Here's the big idea for today. Jesus desires to know you and to be known by you. Jesus desires to know you and to be known by you. And there is no greater love that we will experience than the love of Jesus. I want to point out three things in Luke's narrative that Jesus did Now, these are normal, everyday things. This will probably and most likely be one of the simplest sermons you have heard in your entire life. I'm just going to point out three things that Jesus did. They're common. They're ordinary. They're very everyday, pedestrian kind of things. But I don't want us to miss out on the fact that that's where Jesus meets with us. Yes, Jesus meets us on the Easter Sundays where we put on our good clothes, whatever that means, our best looking Easter shirt, and we take pictures and we get excited and we do all the Easter things, whatever that means for you and your family. Yes, Jesus meets us on those days, but he also meets us on Monday. And he meets us on those hard Wednesdays. And he meets us in the dark times of our lives as well. He meets us in the common everyday aspects of our life even on a seemingly ordinary Easter Sunday. Look with me at verse 13. The first way in which we're going to see that Jesus revealed the resurrection is that Jesus walked. Jesus walked. Does Jesus ever kind of, does he ever make you upset? Like when you read the New Testament do you ever get upset? Probably not so much at Jesus, but maybe more at yourself. I'm like, Jesus, you're just walking. Can't we at least get a skip, if not a run? Like, look, look with me in verse 13. Jesus walked. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What can we learn about this king from the way in which he chooses to announce his kingdom? Jesus chose to spend the entire afternoon of his resurrection day walking with two disciples. Not running, not skipping, walking. And of the two disciples, there are no names. Cleopas. Who's Cleopas? 
The answer, we don't know. This is the only time his name is used. Not only in the Bible, but throughout biblical history. Josephus doesn't mention him in his antiquities. There's no mention of Cleopas. We just know that he was a disciple of Jesus, of the larger group of disciples. He had been with the 12. And he's walking to Emmaus. So Jesus chooses to spend the whole afternoon of his resurrection day walking with a no-name. Oh, wait, no, there were two no-names. Literally, we don't even know the other name of the person. It was Cleopas' friend. That's as good as we can get. Was it, was it a good friend? Was it his wife? We don't know. Jesus is walking with these two. How strange. I, I find this to be very strange. Because I'm thinking, if I was the Savior of the world... If I was God in the flesh and had just been raised to life from the dead, what would I be doing? What would you be doing? Exactly. I can guarantee you, as Westerners, we would be thinking about our marketing, we would be thinking about our technology, and we would be trying to figure out our strategy, right? I mean, we would be thinking to ourselves, Judas has already spent the treasury down. We don't have a lot of marketing money left. You can't trust a marketing guy. So uh, what can we do? Maybe there's a viral kind of campaign that we could bring about tech. We'd be thinking, there's got to be an app for this. Who can I get to make an app for this? Like, we got to share the resurrection. we got this thing called the kingdom of God. We're getting ready to launch the church. Maybe we could connect it to PayPal. You know, there's some way in which maybe we could start, um, maybe we could start a, a donor's campaign. You know, GoFundMe. There, there's got to be a way that, oh, and by the way, strategy. Like, who's the most influential individuals that we can share this message with? Who's got the most impact? Two no-names? Like, what is Jesus up to here? What is he thinking? What is he doing? Jesus is walking in a way that is intimate and personal. Instead of getting his marketing and tech and strategy together, instead, Jesus takes the time to walk with two disciples to share in a conversation that is both intimate and personal. Why? Because Jesus desires to know us. And Jesus desires to be known. I wonder if you might consider that Jesus desires to walk with you even today. One of the circumstances in which we can most easily discern Jesus' presence in our lives is in our suffering. C.S. Lewis would say that it's in our pain that God's megaphone shouts to us. It's in our pain, in our suffering. Suffering has a way of clarifying what's really important, important in our lives. Suffering slows us down. And we see this revealed in this next section of Scripture. If you look at Luke's narrative, look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? 
Listen to Jesus' response. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Not only did Jesus walk, but second, we see that Jesus listened. He listened. Why? Because he cared. Back in verse 15, the Greek word that's used there, um, Luke used a word that is rendered disgusting, which if you look at the origins of, of that word, the word disgusting literally means, it's like when your parents would say, we're not having an argument. We're merely having a discussion, which meant that they were having an argument. And that's the same word that's used here, that they were discussing, literally debating. And as they have this debate, obviously Jesus could have just ended it all, which is what I would have done. Guys, instead, look at what he does. In verse 17 and verse 19, he listens. He says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And then in verse 19, oh so patiently, he says, what things? Why would Jesus do that? Instantly in Jesus' response, we learn something about the gospel. And we learn something about how Jesus informs us in making disciples. We see here that the gospel is far more than just information. And we see that information doesn't change a heart. Because if you look back in, in Mark's gospel, if you turn over to Mark chapter 16, you'll see this story summarized. And in Mark chapter 16, in verses 12 and 13, Mark says... After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So we see from Jesus' response that information isn't enough. Jesus asked questions. Why would he do that? Over the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen um, in the business world and then all throughout um, the church world and the nonprofit profit world, we've seen the, uh, the strategy of coaching emerge and come to the surface. And I love the idea of coaching, and I've had an opportunity to be trained as a coach. And I'm not talking about a football coach or a basketball coach, but a coach is not a counselor who helps you to look back. A coach is someone who, they're not an expert in your field, 
but they ask good questions and help you to look forward. And the power of coaching is this. I can tell you what to do. And more than likely, you're not going to do it. But if I can help you discover what your next steps are that get you to where you want to go, then you're going to be excited about seeing that implemented. This may sound hokey, but I believe Jesus was the greatest coach to ever live. And I think there's an awful lot that we can learn about how to help others through looking at the way in which Jesus merely came along beside others and he walked with them. And then he got to know them on a personal and intimate level and he listened to them. And as he listened, we're in such a hurry. We want a response instantly. We want God to respond to us and we want to see God move in others' lives quickly. But Jesus wasn't concerned with that. Because Jesus, his short game, he didn't depend on it. He had a great long game. And Jesus was all about being patient, getting to know them, because he understood that the Holy Spirit has to do a work in our hearts in order to wake us up to the truths of the gospel. In order that we'll see our need for a rescuer and a redeemer. Information's not enough. And so Jesus asked a few probing questions in order to understand what these disciples believed about the coming Messiah. And look at their answer that comes in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In order to understand this statement, we've got to go back in time. We've got to go back to a garden. The Bible says that, that God created the world without sin, but Satan came to Adam and Eve in the form of a snake and he tempted them to believe that God was holding back. Much the same way that we are oftentimes tempted to believe that God is holding back. That his timing is wrong. That he doesn't give us what's really good. That he can't be trusted. And Adam and Eve believed that. And they believed that they could know the, God, the knowledge of good and evil if they ate the forbidden fruit that God had commanded them not to eat. And so sin and death entered the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And you and I have followed that same path. However, these two disciples were well aware of their sin. They were well aware of their need for a rescuer. In fact, they knew their Old Testament prophecies well enough to know that God had been promising a rescuer. They knew that God had been promising a redeemer. They had been waiting on him. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, all the way back, we see in Genesis 3 that a prophecy had been made that a man would come who would bruise the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise the heel of the man. Paul would go on to write in Romans that the head of the serpent would be crushed by this man. And then there were many other clues to a coming redeemer. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through his descendants. And that one of his descendants was Judah, who God promised that he would send a king from the line of Judah who would redeem and rescue his people. 
And the Israelites had hoped that that king would be David. That he would be the rescuer and the redeemer. But he was not. And ever since that time, they had been waiting. They'd been waiting for a hope. The last 400 years had been eerily quiet. And they were waiting on a redeemer and a rescuer. And they had not given up hope. They were looking for a Messiah. Let me ask, who is your hope? Not for this weekend or not for this next year. What are you putting your hope in? Who is your hope? Like, what's your long game when it comes to hope? For so many people in the world, especially in our city in Memphis, so many people who are around me in my neighborhood and in the part of town that I live in here in Midtown, I find so many people, I would even say the majority of people who are hoping in progress. They're hoping in progress. They're hoping that Memphis will become a better city. We see that happening around us in some ways. They're putting their hope in things like health breakthroughs. They're putting their hope in uh, the civil rights movement. They're putting their hope in taking care of our world and taking care of others and showing mercy to other people and, and making sure that they volunteer and that they serve. They even give some of them large amounts of money away to good causes. And none of those things are bad things. In fact, all of those things are really good things. But none of those things take your sin away. None of those things are worth putting your hope in. None of those things play the long game. They're all a great short game. They look really good. They look like you really care for others. You're not thinking about yourself. Progress. Things are getting better. It's positive. But the problem is it's short-sighted. They don't take our sin away. They don't rescue us from the wrath of God that the Bible says is coming upon all the children of disobedience. Because each of us have gone our own way. And a lot of my friends who have that progressive mentality, yeah, they believe that God is holding back. Or for some of them, as they think about the world and they live that short game, instead of focusing on Jesus and glorifying Him, they're focused on their own lives. What's your long game for dealing with the separation that the Bible declares your sin has made between you and God? See, a lot of my friends who live with a more progressive mentality that just see progress as being the thing that's going to save them, for a lot of them, they don't like to look at their sin. In fact, they're so busy concentrating on doing good things that they don't look at their sin. And if there's anything wrong with the world, well, social media gives them ample opportunity to blame others. And as they blame others, they come to believe that, you know what? They're pretty good people. I mean, look at what they do compared to their neighbor or those who are around them. And they can always do more. 
But the problem is that the Bible says that the wrath of God is upon all people. Because if we're honest with ourselves, our sin separates us from God. And not only does it separate us from God, but it separates us in our own relationships, that our own families have brokenness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to take some responsibility for that. Like we can't just spend our whole lives blaming others like it's everyone else's fault. But there's good news. And the good news comes in the fact that Jesus not only walked and Jesus not only listened, but Jesus talked. He talked because he's loving and because he wants our hearts. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Luke, in this text, he doesn't seem to be saying that they recognize a certain gesture that he made. As I've read this text in the past, I've often thought, was there something that he did that they said, oh, it's it's Jesus. We we recognize that. Or, Or did they recognize the nail marks in his hands? There's nothing in this text that points to that. Instead, Luke seems to be saying that the fellowship of faith with believers in worship around the scriptures and the Lord's table builds faith as the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' followers. Luke is saying that studying the word of God and fellowshipping with other believers in worship around the Lord's table as we take communion together are means that the Holy Spirit uses to empower our faith, to open our eyes, to cause our hearts to burn within us, that we come to know God in a personal way through his word and through remembering his sacrifice for us. And that's why we've made such a huge investment in what we call missional communities, that as we open our homes throughout the week and show hospitality, Not only do those who are part of this spiritual family, but that we open up our homes and that we open up our lives to those who are neighbors and our coworkers and that we invite them to come in and to study God's word along with us and to fellowship with us, to break bread with us and to spend time to experience life with a spiritual family of men and women who have encountered the living Jesus and whose lives have been forever changed by it. Now look at verse 26. 
Jesus points to the fact that he is the true fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, proving that suffering really does lead to glory. All the Old Testament had been leading up to this. And as Jesus walks and as he listens and as he talks, he is taking the time, he is taking the time to hear where these disciples are in their journey. He's listening. Where are they in their journey of faith? He's also taking the time for the Holy Spirit to stir their hearts in order that they would come to see him as their rescuer and their king. Let me just ask you on this Easter, can you say personally in your life that the Lord has risen indeed? Can you say that? Do you believe that Jesus has conquered death and hell and the grave? Has your heart burned within you as you've come to know Jesus? Because he is far more intimate and far more caring and far more loving than you may have ever imagined. I wonder how many of you are are here today and you're experiencing suffering in your life. How many of you need to experience a risen Savior who will walk with you through the hardships of life, who will listen to your struggles, and who will tell you how you can be saved and know Him? I think that today, the beauty of the gospel is this. The same invitation that Jesus extended to these two as he walked with them and as he listened and as he talked with them is extended to each of us today. The invitation to know him. But here's what's so vitally important in the South. I grew up in Alabama and I was in the church building every time the doors were open. We were there early and we were there late. We were there so early that my brother and I We kind of have joked around, but I think we're actually committed to it. We've told my dad, we're going to roll you into your funeral late. Five minutes late, dad. Casket's coming in late because it's going to be the only time that you've ever shown up at church late because we were always there like 30 minutes early. Like we're always in church. There's a danger in that. The danger is that the gospel becomes familiar. And that you fall into the trap of believing because you've heard something over and over again. You fall into the trap of believing that because you've heard information that somehow it's impacted your life. Jesus calls us to follow him. Not merely to believe. Because he loves us. Listen, who wants to be in a marriage relationship in which the spouse says, hey, I'm committed to you. I'm gonna be here forever. I don't know if I love you or not. I told you that at the altar. That's good enough. I'll let you know if anything changes. But I'm committed to you. Who wants that kind of relationship? No, we want a relationship in which our spouse says, I'm committed to marriage and I'm also committed to you because I love you. And Jesus wants a relationship with you in which you desire to know him to a point that you have confessed your sin and that you have committed your life to him and that you've said, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you 
with all of my life. Big difference. One is information. The other is commitment. But here's the deal. Here's what's beautiful about this. If you've grown up in the South, more than likely you believe the way to be committed to Jesus is to do really good things, to be religious. Because the South teaches us, if you're religious, this is what Christians look like. And then there's all these rules that go with that. You don't drink alcohol, or maybe you don't dance, or maybe you don't chew, or play cards, or go with girls that do. And all those rules that we grew up hearing. I saw one of the kids run down the aisle earlier, and we were taught, don't run in church, don't run in church. Why? All these rules that we come up with, that we call religion, And so if you're exposed to that without the grace and mercy of God, you run toward irreligion, which is I'm going to make my own way. I don't trust all that stuff. And so I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to trust in progress, my progress. I'm going to choose my own way. I'm going to live my own life. And God invites us to a third way, which is that we would follow Jesus. And it's free. It costs us nothing and it costs Jesus everything. You say, what do I have to do in order to follow him? Jesus has already made the way. There's nothing you can do other than surrender your religion and surrender your irreligion and say, Jesus, I want to be a follower of you. If that's the story of your life, today's a beautiful day because that's the story of each and every one of our lives. That every one of us are as miserable as a man or a woman who is waiting on death row to face annihilation, to face darkness. That is the story of our lives. And the gospel breaks through and says, you are on death row, but I've made a way to release you from prison and to give you life, everlasting life. But not just when you die, life beginning now through the Spirit. That's the invitation that God gives to us today. Listen, I want to invite you where you are, if you would, to bow your heads. And if today you realize I'm a religious person or I'm an irreligious person, but if you don't know Jesus, I just want to invite you to to pray this prayer with me. Listen, the words aren't important. In fact, the words don't even matter if what's in your heart, if your heart isn't committed to him. But if your heart burns within you and if you see that You've sinned and that you've run from God. But that God has made a way that you can know him and that you can be a friend of God. And your desire is to follow Jesus. If that's the desire of your heart, then silently in your heart, pray this prayer after me. Jesus, I've sinned against you. I've gone my own way. God, I deserve your wrath. But God, today I wanna confess my sin This separated me from you and I want to repent of it. And Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to ask you to save me. Jesus, save me. Give me eternal life. Give me life with you now. Jesus, I commit my life to you. God, no turning back to my old way. Jesus, you have my heart. Listen, with all heads bowed, If you prayed that prayer today, if that's the desire of your heart, would you do me a favor and just slip your hand up with no one looking so I can know and just pray for you? If you echoed that prayer to God today and 
and you ask Jesus to save you, would you just slip your hand up and let me acknowledge it? And then I want to pray for us. All right, thank you. Father, thank you for this story. God, your story of never-ending love for us, that you would send Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you are so personal and so caring and so loving that you would make a way that we can be redeemed and that we can know you. Jesus, I pray for those who are here today and um, God, who don't yet know you, I pray that they would trust in your patience, that they would walk with you, they would commit to continuing to walk with a family of believers. And Jesus, I pray for those of us who know you that God, our hearts again would burn within us as we recognize that you are our hope and that you are our joy. Jesus, thank you that you walk with us in love even today. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we end our worship service today, we're going to ask you guys to go with us outside in just a minute. And um, there are six uh, students and children who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And we're so excited about God's work and the Spirit's work that we have seen in the lives of these kids. And uh, I just, in reflecting back over um, what we're about to experience, it's so much more than just, just a day. Um, because we see that the work that goes into Sunday mornings as um, I want to thank Caitlin and Alyssa who have written curriculum for our kids over the last three weeks. And they've, they wrote an entire Easter curriculum um, entitled The Garden, uh, The Curtain, and The Cross. And so our kids are hearing the gospel spoken every week. And then a few weeks ago, we went through um, a presentation called Big Questions. And We answered some of those big questions and the Spirit began to stir um, anew in some kids' lives and some kids had already come to know Jesus. And we're so thankful that we can be a part of a family in which it's the norm for kids to grow up coming to know and believe in Jesus. And in our society, we kind of tend to look at the big stories of people who have done all the bad things and are older in their life, and then they come to know Jesus, and we kind of see that as the heroic story. But I believe the heroic story is when young children come to know Jesus and commit their lives to him and say, Jesus, you have all of my life. And when they can grow up in an atmosphere, in an environment, in a spiritual family, in which not only is it just in their homes that they're seeing the gospel lived out, but amongst their friends and in a youth group and in a larger body that they're seeing people who are on mission, who are loving those who are orphaned and distressed and who are doing mercy ministry and who are seeking the wealth and the health and the the health and the welfare of our city, but they're doing it in order to make the name of Jesus known. That's a beautiful thing. And I am so thankful to be a part of this spiritual family. And so as we gather today around that trough outside, we've talked with the kids about what this means. And we've said it means two things. It's a celebration and it's a picture. So it's a celebration. And we talked about it last Sunday morning at breakfast with the students and kids who are getting baptized. And we said, when you have a birthday party, does that make you turn one age older? Like, and if you don't have a birthday party, then do you not turn one age older? And they said, no, it's just celebrating your birthday. And we said, that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash your sins away. But we are celebrating What are we celebrating? We're celebrating a picture. It's a picture 
a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And that's what communion is when we come to the Lord's table each Sunday. And that's what baptism is. These are sacraments that God has given to his church that we would remember, that we would have physical pictures of spiritual realities of what God has done in us and what he wants to do through us. And so in just a minute, when I dismiss you guys, as we go out, we're a part of the worship experience that continues out there. You may think, I'm not getting wet today. It's okay. If you've been baptized before, then this is an opportunity for you to be reminded that as Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came down and God looked upon him in the same way that God looks upon you. And may you be reminded that God says, this is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. In them I am well pleased. And as we step outside these doors and see these six baptisms, we are reminded that this day, God is well pleased with each of us. He loves us and he likes us because of Jesus. And so we walk in his grace and we walk in that hope and we walk in his joy. And so I want to dismiss parents first who have kids who are being baptized. If they're in the kids area, go ahead and you guys can be dismissed um, to go grab your little ones and to get them ready and to meet us outside um, by the trough. And as they go to get them, I want to give them just a second. And then I'm going to dismiss um, other parents who have kids in the kids area. And I know that that hallway is narrow and the building is small. So it's going to take us just a minute, but we're going to be patient and wait on you. We would love for you to quickly um, go and get your kids so that they can be a part of the baptism. And we know it will be crazy. We know that the little ones will want to play in the water. It's okay. Um, so we're going to leave some space for the little ones up front. We'll keep them behind the rail if we can so they can see what's going on because we want them to experience this. And then some of our older folks will be in the back. So if you have kids, um, you can go ahead and be dismissed to go and pick up your kids.